The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Do you like sports? Cause we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's Sports Jack. Sports Jack. It's Sports Jack. Sports Jack presents Irish Tales with Chuck Freebie and Bob Nagel. Stories from the land of the fighting Irish on the Studio DNA Podcast Network. And how you doing, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Irish Tales. Chuck Freebie along with the tale teller himself, Bob Nagel. <laughs> and the Irish have just wrapped up a regular season under Marcus Freeman, his first year as the head coach with a record of 8-4, and four, which, as you might expect, kind of falls in the middle of of where Irish coaches have done in their first years, actually probably leans towards the better side. Now, some people will argue, well, yeah, he was taking over a program that was already established because lots of times coaches coming in in their first years don't have that luxury of taking over something that had already been set as successful. Um, And certainly we've seen... Turnaround stories in first years. We've seen coaches trying to build programs in their first years. Where do you want to start on this topic? Well, normally when you get a coaching change and somebody new comes in, you got to look at what he's coming into. And as you said, Brian Kelly had a lot of success here. So for Marcus Freeman, he didn't have to come in and teach the guys how to win. They knew how to be successful, but he had to get his system in, had to get his coaches in, had to get his um, – players to buy in and uh, and I thought they did a good job of that you know you look at eight and four and you say it should have been probably ten and two mm-hmm. and uh, ten and two would have put him in the you know the elite class of first year coaches but hey, we're eight and four uh, we lost two really good teams uh, good teams in Ohio State and Southern Cal the other two that kind of got away was uh, you know for a lot of different reasons but I think uh, eight and four is a real solid start for Marcus Freeman I, and I love the way people felt after the Clemson win, like he's moving in the right direction. We ended up winning seven in a row there in the uh, second half of the season or six in a row, whatever it was. And it got us to a, a point where everybody said, gee, if we hadn't lost to Marshall, maybe we'd be in the picture. Well, yeah. we're not good enough to be in the picture right now, <laughs> but I think we're moving in the right direction. Well, let's start a little bit with some history of guys coming in in their first years. And the, the guy, to me... I know era, and we'll talk about him, 1964, and the turnaround that he did. But we were just talking off the air before we started, looking at some of the numbers. And you had mentioned, frankly, he really had to restart twice. He had to restart when he came here from Boston College. Right. And then Leahy enlisted in the war effort and came back from the war and had to restart again in, in 1946. Both of those years... 
He went 8-0-1. Why did they want him back? <laughs> <laughs> but, again, Leahy took over a program that wasn't broken. I mean, he took over from Elmer Layden, who went 7-2 and the year before Leahy came here from Boston College. What was it about Leahy? You've spoken to a lot of the guys that played for him. What was it about Leahy that allowed him, especially that first time coming in in 41, to have that kind of success? Well, I think one of the reasons Moose Cross always talked about Leahy was such a disciplinarian, mm -hmm. and he was a tough coach. You know, and the guys loved him more after they were done playing for him than when they were playing for him. And so when he came from Boston College, Notre Dame had a very high standard as far as, uh, boy, you think about the parietals that were in place back in those days. But uh, he he took a group of guys, and uh, they're very disciplined, very successful, and uh, and really carried that on through his whole career. But when he came back the second time, he brought so much talent with him after the war that you know forty six letter winners didn't get a jersey in the first road game that they played after the war. That's how much talent they had. But uh, frankly, he was uh, a guy who uh, was in good position twice to take over Notre Dame and did a great job. And uh, I think everybody was wanting the war to hurry up because they, they knew that Frank was going to be ready to go. I love the story of when Leahy came here from Boston College. He had, of course, Notre Dame was his alma mater. He had played for Rockney. And so he had been interested in the job. It's finally offered to him. Now he's trying to be obedient. And so he goes to the administration at Boston College and ask for release from his contract. And he's not getting the answers he wants. So he comes to South Bend and holds a press conference stating, I've been given release from my contract at Boston College. Uh -huh. Shortly after the press conference, and this is going out on the wires, and the, folks, you have to remember, <laughs> 1941 is not like today. Things didn't exactly move at lightning speed, but there was telegraph, there was radio, there were ways of getting the message out. And the message got out pretty quickly to Boston. And the president of, the, of Boston College calls Leahy and says, don't come back, which is what Frank wanted. Well, you did. And uh, <clears throat> who knows, you know, all the times we play Boston College, everybody says, well, there's some bad blood there. Well, how far back does it go? And uh, I would say about 80 years <laughs> yeah. on their part. Yeah, and they've always, uh, I think, you know, why would Leahy leave Bo uh, Boston College for Notre Dame? Maybe he thought it was a step up. And, of course, this is alma mater, as you said. And, right. Uh, but uh, just that perception that people have always said, well, if you can't get into Notre Dame, maybe you can go to Boston College. And every time we play them, they, they have that in the back of their minds. And, by the way, Frank had done very well at Boston College. He was either 20 or 21 and 2 in his two years with the Eagles. Right. And that was a time when, uh, you know, if you're a good team on the East Coast, that's what it was all about. They're, you know, the the Western teams were in Illinois. And, yep. uh, and so uh, when you had a good, solid program, and, you know, that was a tough time, too, around 40, 39, 40, 41, 42. And a lot of things going on in our world in those days, and he was able to uh, keep the focus and, uh, and have a lot of success, and he certainly brought that with him here. You mentioned the discipline that 
Leahy had and and the transition that those players had to make, I would certainly think coming out of the war in 46, in some ways it was probably easier for those players to handle Leahy's discipline. On the other hand, those were full-grown men who had gone through some experiences that made college football look like a true walk in the park. Right. So I'm really curious in in talking with those people, Bob, how did they balance the fact that, you know, this wasn't an 18-year-old kid coming out of high school. These were 22, 23, 24-year-old men who had gone through the war. How did they balance the discipline and let's let's just say the lack of nightlife possibilities on campus? Well, there was some. And uh, the thing was that uh, you talked to some of the guys that, uh, uh, that played for Leahy back during that time. And um, I'm thinking of uh, uh, our favorite uh, lineman who... George Connor. Well, George Connor was one. Leon Hart. Uh, Leon Hart. Ziggy Zorowski. Z- Ziggy Zorowski is one I was thinking of. Uh, talked about how those guys would disappear on a Thursday evening and go over to Elkhart. And there was a couple of places over there where they could go mm-hmm. and go upstairs and have a few beers as long as they were, you know, and the captains were on them more than Leahy, back to campus by 10 o'clock or whatever it was because they knew that, you know, Leahy would go along with it. Leahy had been in the war, and uh, he knew that these were men and not boys. And, uh, you know, you come back, and as you said, you've had so many experiences. You've, you've seen people die. You've been responsible for that kind of thing, and it takes you to a whole nother level. But you just can't wait to come back. And as everybody who fought in the war will tell you, why why was it worthwhile? Because I could come back home, and we could reestablish our life the way we wanted it to be. So these guys who came back and wanted to play football uh, had a great opportunity with Frank Leahy, and the competition was phenomenal. And if you didn't get a jersey – you know, if you got one, there was three guys behind you that were probably just as good. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of guys that were second teamers at Notre Dame got drafted in the in the pro draft because they were that uh, that talented and that deep. But um, yeah, Frank knew how to work his way around there, and I think he probably was like a drill sergeant in a lot of ways. When you had these returning men, you got on them tough because then the new guys coming in were like, "Oh my goodness, if he's if he's going after George Connor like that." Of course, George Conner came from Boston College with him. Well, yeah. So Then a lot of people forget Terry Brennan started his career 9-1. and one. Of course, he inherits a team from Leahy that had gone undefeated the, the year before. And I guess uh, our friend Mr. Harbaugh might say that Terry Brennan got to start on third base. Yeah. Uh, because... <laughs> Of what he inherited, because it, you know, after that nine and one, obviously, quickly went south for Terry. Just two years later, he was two and eight. But I have to imagine for Terry Brennan, especially the fact that you're going from Leahy, <clears throat> this taskmaster, who remember from fifty to fifty three had to rebuild the program after the war effort. I mean, nineteen fifty, they only go four four and one. By 53, he has rebuilt things. They're 9-0-1 again. But Terry Brennan was, what, 25 years old? 25 years old, but he was – everybody had their arm around him. He was our little guy. 
you know, and he was um, he was just a favorite, and he's a perfect guy to bring in to to follow. He and uh, I think the thing that hurt Terry more than anything, especially in his later years, and he stayed very loyal to Notre Dame. He would show up for events, and uh, I mean, never had a bitter word to say about the way things were handled. But uh, I think he was like, "Wow, everybody was in love with me," you know, for a couple of years, and then yeah. all of a sudden it, it wasn't. And uh, and that kind of bothered him, I think, over the years because you know, as you said, Frank went, went down to four four and one, brought the team back, and uh, of course, when Terry Brennan had a two and eight team, I think they won the Heisman Trophy. They did with Paul Horning. <laughs> so he had some success during that uh, period of time, but uh, I, I I never felt good about you know. They, I guess they called him on Christmas Eve and said, "Oh, by the way, we're making a change." Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, yeah. Merry Christmas to all. <laughs> and to all the good night. But um, especially, you know, then they bring in a, a succession of coaches that didn't have a lot of success. Well, Joe Kaharik is the guy that takes over from Terry Brennan. And Kaharik in his first year goes 5-5. Five and five. NFL coach adapting to the college ranks, and it never really happened. And it hasn't happened. You know, you look back at uh, so many sports. We mention this from time to time, but uh, was John McLeod ill-fitted to be a college coach probably after the pros? Great guy, wonderful person. Uh, even Dave Poulin admitted that going from pro hockey to college hockey is a huge adjustment. Charlie Weiss came from the NFL. Uh, I think there was a problem with transition there as well. So, uh, yeah, Joe Kuharik came from uh, the uh, Washington Redskins, I believe, and came in and, and believed in big. He wanted his yeah. running backs to be 210 pounds. Well, that was a good-sized guard back then. And uh, so when, uh, you know, it really helped Era because Era played against him and scouted him and recruited a lot of the same players and actually knew the Northwestern team uh, when he was at Northwestern, he knew the Notre Dame team better than maybe Kuharik did and what it would take to be successful in college because Aaron made a lot of changes, And uh, but he was familiar with the talent. See, I think you fail to see Kuharik as a visionary because a 210-pound running back is pretty common today, today yeah. in 2022. He was just 60 years ahead of his time. That's right. Um, you mentioned Era. Era comes in, goes 9-1, and one, uh, famously... Uh, loses to USC in the the final minute, uh, or he would have had an undefeated season. And we've talked a little bit on previous episodes about this, but the transition that Era Parsegan made, taking a roster, it, it was like coming into the island of misfit toys. <laughs> uh, he finds a quarterback at the seventh string who winds up being a Heisman Trophy winner. I think that is one of the all-time... Heisman stories. I realize we've had former walk-ons now win the Heisman with guys like Baker Mayfield, but John Huard had a scholarship, but he might as well have been treated like a walk-on during his, most of his time at Notre Dame. All right. I think John Huard was an example of what Era wanted, what a lot of coaches want. You don't want a gunslinger back there. You don't want somebody back there making his own decisions. Do what I ask you to do when I ask you to do it. And John Huard did that. Uh, and, of course, you hand a ball off to Larry Kanjar and uh, and some of the guys, Bill Walski in that backfield, and all of a sudden uh, a Jim Seymour comes back and says they're biting on the play action. You throw a, a deep route, and you got hand ready to Seymour, and you've got uh, uh, Hewer to Snow, and you've got you know that that whole uh, thing was set up by the discipline, and you see that from Bill Belichick. You know he does want a quarterback. You know Tom Brady wasn't a gunslinger; he just did everything he was told to do. 
and uh, developed into a great quarterback. But when Eric came in, and, and you mentioned uh, uh, John Hewitt was uh, actually coming off a severe shoulder injury, and Eric was told you need to have that operated on, and he said, well, I got another doctor who says let it heal, and it healed, and, and he did very well. But he also was, uh, when he came in, it wasn't important that John Hewitt be the best player on the field. It was important that everybody that Eric put in the right position to play uh, made the big difference there. You know, I think of Paul Costa going from running back to defensive tackle where he makes All-American. That's pretty good adjustment. That, yeah. You know. that That's a phenomenal switch. And, and it shows how you mentioned Herrick had brought in big bodies. Well, Era found the proper way to use those big bodies. So I guess give Joe Koharik some credit for recruiting. He just didn't recruit them for the right spots. Yeah. Era, of course, has that wonderful 11-year run, the era of Era. And Father Joyce turns to Dan Devine, whom he had promised the job to at some point in life. And Dan Devine, who had spent some time in the college ranks at Missouri and had success there, then went to Green Bay. Had <laughs> you think about Dan Devine? He's got the misfortune of following Vince Lombardi at Green Bay <laughs> and Eric Parsegian at Notre Dame. No wonder a lot of people think that he doesn't get the credit maybe that he deserves. And he came in in his first year and went eight and three, taking over a team that Era had gone ten and two with. Yeah, there was a lot of questions. You know, the, the decisions that he made, and and we talked about this with some of the other coaches over the years. Like when Jerry Faust came in, he wanted the guys who were here to fulfill their opportunity at Notre Dame. He wasn't eager to bench people or get rid of the other guys' players. Uh, I think Dan Devine was different than that. Jerome Heavens from the first day of practice wore a blue jersey. And a lot of the other guys were like, what's going on? I mean, that's something you got to earn. And Devine decided that Jerome Heavens was going to be a, a starter. And so uh, it was a different thing. And you think about guys like uh, Frank Alaco, Tom Paris, Brian Doherty. I mean, there's a lot of talent coming back on that team. And Mark McLean came back as a running back and was captain and left the team uh, because of the way things were being done. So Dan made a decision. You know, I'm not going to worry about guys who are loyal to ERA or try to find guys that can be loyal to me too. I'm just going to make my own decision. So it was a, a, a different approach, and everybody's entitled to it. But one thing, Dan Devine, everywhere he went, whether the pros, whether Missouri, whether even in his time at Michigan State as an assistant, he was always surrounded by really great, talented assistant coaches, and mm-hmm. I give him credit for that. Well, and the fact of the matter is, if you look at how they did that year – it wasn't all that off base of how things were going for ERA. I mean, yes, the transition wasn't smooth in terms of the personnel, but in terms of the wins and losses on the field, 8-3 and three wasn't terrible. No. It was a little less than what Irish fans had become used to at that time, but it wasn't uh, the worst Irish season. And uh, unfortunately for Jerry Faust, he would prove that when he came in. <laughs> taking over from Divine, going five and six. The thing I remember, I was in high school at the time Faust came in, and just this thought that they would go and hire a high school coach. Boy, this guy must be phenomenal. And he had had phenomenal success Mm -hmm. at Cincinnati Moeller High School. 
And the atmosphere surrounding his first game, a, a win over LSU at Notre Dame Stadium, was absolutely wild. It was. I could still see him in the golf cart prior to the game, going around to all the tailgates, wanting to say hello to people. And uh, we had a, a function at Marion High School, welcome Jerry Faust and the Fighting Irish. And they had phenomenal turnout. Had three or 4,000 people show up for an event that had, uh, you know, hot dogs and, and so on. And uh, it was just a phenomenal. Jerry did everything he could to invigorate the program and uh, to get people moving in the right direction and, uh, and was successful beyond belief uh, with that aspect of it. But when you put a six foot five guy in at running back, um, that's when the question started. And uh, we had a pass up against Michigan that, uh, you know, they called our guy out half a step out of the end zone. Uh, Might have turned that thing around. I mean, there's a lot of things that coulda, shoulda, woulda. But uh, Jerry, I think, was a, a tremendous, as we know, a tremendous person, tremendous man, gave everything he could to Notre Dame. Just. It's just the same example. You know, if you go from the pros to college, it's a different animal. Go from high school to college, it's a hugely different animal that you've got to get under control. Well, and you mentioned the assistants who were around Dan Devine. Some of them stayed with Jerry, but not many. No. And most of them moved on. And I don't think he had enough of a grasp of what he was getting himself into. I've never blamed Jerry. If somebody came, if I were a coach and somebody came and earnestly offered me the kind of job that he was being offered, of course I would have taken. Right. But he was just so far in over his head, it wasn't even funny. Yeah, and the guys, uh, you know, he trusted the players, and the players are always going to try the coach. I mean, you know, one of the things when Eric came in, uh, he had told everybody, I don't want anybody going here and going here and going here. And if you do that, you're going to be gone. So he found a couple of guys over at a local thirst parlor one night, and he tapped him on the shoulder, and he said, turn in your equipment. They said, we're suspended. He goes, no, you're done. Well, in those days, as opposed to kids today, yeah. uh, in those days, if you had to go home and tell your dad that uh, you lost your scholarship at Notre Dame, it's going to be hell to pay. Yeah. And uh, and so Era did that. And much, you know, you think about what Leahy did as far as, you always, in the Marine Corps, they always go after the biggest, toughest guy and break him down, and everybody else falls in line. So when these two guys were sent packing, there wasn't any question about whether or not Arrow was going to put up with it. So when Jerry came in, I think Jerry had a different uh, – he trusted the kids. He trusted that they weren't going to go out and, uh, and spend their nights uh, uh, doing things that they probably shouldn't have been doing. They were going to – they were going to show up every day, and, and he really, you know, he loved the idea of a Notre Dame athlete. I remember Steve Berline and uh, Wally Klein, a couple of guys that, you know, got a chance to come back and uh, play that last year, and they're forever grateful for that. But, again, you had that transition decision you got to make as a coach. Do I want to go with the other guys' guys? Do I want to go with my own guys? And, uh, and uh, as I said, Jerry, you know, he had a couple of games that year that uh, might have uh, gone in a different direction, but uh, – he had some uh, phenomenal days and games here at Notre Dame in his time. Let's skip ahead to Lou Holtz. Five and six his first year. So the record, not even close to what Marcus Freeman had. He also didn't inherit the kind of talent Marcus Freeman had. The The years of recruiting under Jerry Faust had paled in comparison. And this was a total rebuild effort. 
It was, and uh, Lou came in obviously with a uh, his own standard and what he's going to create uh, because that's the way he had built his uh, reputation and his coaching prowess. And so discipline is going to be a big part of it. But uh, I think one of the things about uh, when Lou came in, he he often said that first year, first we got to learn how to work. Then we got to learn how to win. Then we got to learn how to win by enough. You know, and it's a process. And um, I remember that uh, when he took over the program, you know, he waited till the team got back from Miami where they had been embarrassed mm-hmm. on national TV and the seniors were allowed to go. And the underclass were getting ready to go. And uh, Jerry Faust said, uh, your new coach is here. And he wants to talk to you. And it was 4.30 in the morning. And Luca, and he said, we're going to get the sucker turned around. Boy, I mean like right now. Now, you got the rest of the weekend. It was Sunday morning at 4.30. Yeah. And so you got the rest of the weekend. But Monday morning, 6 o'clock, we're going to be on the on the, um, the artificial turf inside the North Dome. And uh, they worked every morning. And, I mean, I can remember being out there watching – George Stewart and some of those guys. I mean, the intensity that those guys were hit with. Now, again, the wins and losses. Uh, Lou went to South Carolina and lost every game his first year down there. Sure. And his quote was, uh, we'll be better next year. <laughs> of course, they had to be. But, he, I mean, he saw things falling into place. Uh, I remember a story about Tim Brown. Um, you know, Tim was a shy kid when he came in. He actually had a problem with stuttering during interviews and things like right. that. And uh, he called him off the side one day. He said, Tim Brown, Tim Brown, Tim Brown. Going over to the echoes. You are way too t- gifted to be average. You are way too talented to be average. And Tim said, nobody ever said that to me before. Mm-hmm. You know, you you're not, you're not, you shouldn't be trying to win a starting spot. You're one of the best players in the country. Start playing like it. And it changed his whole mental approach to the game. And he did that with a lot of players. He, uh, I think one of Lou's qualities, too, is he was able to uh, handle difficult situations. You know, he had some times when he had players who missed uh, curfews and things like that and had creative ways of dealing with it and turned it into a positive. So here's a guy that, you know, he hired a college coach, came in and handled the college assignment. Bob Davey takes over from Lou Holtz after Holtz's tenure ends. Uh, Lou was 8-3 and three in his final season, and some of the Wolves were howling about that. Mm. Well, they couldn't have been enamored with 7-6 and six from Bob Davey, and they weren't. No, they weren't. And I think, uh, you know, we uh, by that time, you know, you were mentioning, you, you drop-kicked me there a little bit ago. You said I was still in high school. And, <laughs> <laughs> but when Bob Davey took over, you know, it was much more important for Bob Davey to be the head coach than to be able to be the head coach. And he... Uh, ascended. Uh, Notre Dame wanted somebody they could control a little bit more. I think they thought that Lou was a little bit uh, beyond. Well, that's know. the thing. There were a lot of things happening politically behind the scenes right. at Notre Dame that caused Holtz to leave, mainly the fact that Mike Wadsworth had taken over as AD from yeah. Dick Rosenthal. And, and Mike Wadsworth, while a splendid man, I don't think was really – cut out to be a college athletic director because he didn't really know that much about college sports. He'd spent his time as a political ambassador over in Ireland. Yeah, and he still belonged to three country clubs and played at all of them Mm -hmm. in Florida, in Canada, and in Ireland. Uh, And as you said, you know, Mike was a good guy, Notre Dame grad and everything. But uh, they were, you know, Lou was probably at a point where he might have had a little bit more 
you know, when, when you control, not control, but when you own your audience and your spectators and your fans, uh, makes it a little bit tougher. But whatever reason, you know, Lou always said it wasn't wrong. It was just different when Dick Rosenthal left. Right. And uh, so Bob Davey comes in. And uh, Bob was a terrific, terrific defense coordinator, or Lou Holtz would not have hired him. He, every time we played A&M, he always said, it's one of the toughest assignments I have is trying to figure out his defense. So he brought him to Notre Dame. Uh, Bob Davey with uh, maybe seven, eight years as a head coach comes back to Notre Dame. Might have been a huge different uh, uh, approach. But I think you know, he went from being, like as far as I was concerned, and, and many other guys in the media, he went from being a guy you could sit down and just talk to right, to a guy who was trying to act like the, the head coach. The pressure got to him. Sure I, I think being in that crucible of being the head coach at Notre Dame, and I can only imagine what it's like now with social media and all the other demands that are on your time, but there were far more demands on the time than Bob Davey, I think, quite frankly, thought there would be. Yeah, and I think one of the things about when you think about Bob Davey, and we're going to talk about Tyrone Willingham here in a minute, but uh, when you look back at that time of uh, Terry Brennan, uh, even Hugh DeVore, Joe Kuharik, it wasn't a multi-million dollar or multi-billion dollar no. situation. You try to be good, you, you know, get your fans in your stands and that type of thing. When Eric came in, and it's kind of ironic because when he came in, it was almost the same time that Arnold Palmer – uh, had taken golf into the television years. And all of a sudden, like, wow, you, know, you can watch Arnold Palmer play and Jack Nicholas play. And so when Notre Dame and Southern Cal hooked up, and I can still see Tony Carey with his hand out, just missing that Craig mm -hmm. Furtick pass. And um, it just changed the whole game because, you know, wow, you can watch. That was Notre Dame in Southern California, and you could watch it all around the nation. And uh, as things went along, it became a bigger money decision. Uh, you know, hiring Lou Holtz uh, from Minnesota, who had come from Arkansas, was a, a move that they want to make. Gene Corrigan always talked about there's so much on the line. And, and Lou did a great job of uh, you know, winning championship and con competing for a couple more. And, uh, and we were able to sell Notre Dame football and get the NBC contract and that kind of thing. So when you move along now to Bob Davey, uh, where there might have been more patience for him years ago, you you can't do it. You're, no. You get too big of a – and I give Kevin White credit. You know, Kevin uh, called him in and uh, renegotiated his contract, and everybody said, what are you doing? But he put in there a codicil that said, if you lose five games in one season, we have your resignation. In other words, we don't have to, you know – and We so, don't have to fire you. You will – yeah, and so when, when he lost his fifth game, mm -hmm. uh, he came in and he said, well, Notre Dame would never fire a coach that's doing things the right way, graduating kids, et cetera, et cetera. And Kevin White said, you know, just simply told him that you've already resigned, you know, yeah. a new contract. And so if you want to go with your buyout, then uh, that's the way it's going to be. So, uh, you know, coaching football became bigger business. And uh, so – well, and again, the political undertones going on at the university. So people weren't happy with the fact that Kevin White had hired Bob Davey and he had not succeeded. So the powers that be under the dome decided to take over the next hiring 
Unfortunately, they didn't check resumes. Let's see. George is undefeated, I think. George O'Leary remains undefeated as Notre Dame coach. <laughs> he also didn't win any games because he lasted about a week. Yeah. Because it was found that he had made a mistake on his, well, I'll be gracious and say made a mistake on his resume. He had yeah. falsified right. some things on his resume, which didn't sit well with the faculty at Notre Dame. So he was dismissed. And in the tumult that followed, uh, Tyrone Willingham was hired away from Stanford and came to Notre Dame and went 9-0 and to start. Wound up finishing that season 10-3. and But everybody had thought, wow, what did we stumble into? Right. And I have never seen a honeymoon so quickly dissolve as it did when he wore the green jerseys against Boston College and lost and went from 9-0 and to 9-1. and and honestly, from that point on, had less than a 500 record at Notre Dame. Right. And I think a lot of that was a reflection of how he was uh, treated after after he had some uh, lack of success. And, uh, of course, there's also a, 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 a spinning wheel out there of coaches available. Right. We, we could have got this guy. We could have got that guy. And so Tyrone, uh, you know, three years in, he ran a different type of a uh, – I remember the assistant coaches being let – go from the office at noon on Thursday. We'll see you Saturday. Well, he had spent some time with uh, Coach Green up in Minnesota with the Vikings. And I think in, in the pros, they do it that way. Right. And so he came in and brought some professional uh, things in. Mike uh, Denbrock, who's still a highly successful coach, uh, was one of the guys who would come over and said, I said, what are you doing, you know, out on a Thursday afternoon, he's the way coach does it. And uh, so, you know, we've got coaches now that you can't get a half hour of their time on Thursday, Friday, or, you know, Saturday morning. And uh, here he's letting the guys go on Thursday afternoon. And the players, uh, you know, in the pros, y- your salary keeps you locked in. Yes. They don't worry about, you know, I'm not going to come to you and tell you you got to get in better condition because if you're not in great condition, I'm going to cut you and get a free agent. So uh, Tyrone came from, uh, again, coming from uh, Stanford where he had great success, but also coming from the pros where you get different ideas of what it would take. And, you know, Tyrone was, again, a wonderful guy, but he was on the golf course every morning at 645. And uh, he uh, spent a lot of time, you know, in the weight room and raising his family. And he had a lot of, you know, different things going on in his life at that time. But it just didn't ever seem like it was going to be a – a thing that would mesh. And then, as you said, there was outside influences that were less than uh, happy with his success and went after him, you know, pretty rough. And being an African-American head coach in South Bend is not always the easiest thing. No, it isn't. And uh, when you have people, uh, you know, on the board of trustees at that time, uh, had some people that thought they might have had more influence than they, they should have or would have. Uh, you know, and uh, Monk Malloy had been our president. Mm-hmm. Monk never wanted to be president of Notre Dame. He wanted to teach uh, uh, theology, and he wanted to write books, and he wanted to uh, to teach. And they tell him, we need you to be president. I'll do it. So uh, he was getting ready to leave, and they're talking about bringing in somebody new. And uh, when the new guy gets brought in, the first thing they tell him is to get rid of Tyrone Willingham. And I, really? Is that what we're concerned about as a university, is telling our president the first thing he's going to do is change 
the uh, the head football coach. And Kevin White didn't want to because Kevin had a plan, as most athletic directors do. He had talked to Paul Johnson at Navy, but Paul Johnson needed one more year at Navy to get his vested pension of five hundred fifty thousand a year. Uh, he was the highest paid guy in our defense department budget when he was at Navy, and uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm sure Ken. Uh, Niamalolo is probably the, in the same situation. But uh, Paul Johnson had great success at Navy. He was able to work with the talent he had. He was in the fishbowl, you know, a lot of the same things. And he had beaten Notre Dame. And so it was sort of like an Aeroparsigian kind of a thing. But uh, we were uh, we made the move, got rid of Willingham. And then, you know, who are we going to get? Well, Charlie Weiss comes in and doesn't really go through the procedures that you would want in place, but – says, you know, I might be willing to leave the world champion New England Patriots to come in and save the program. And uh, I think Charlie had a real different idea what college coaching was. Yeah, and and went 9-3 and three that first year. And, of course, the famous sign that went up in the Goog after that, 9-3 and three isn't good enough. And uh, the following year he went 10-3, and three, which still wasn't good enough. Right. And it soon deteriorated after that to the point where Jack Swarbrick, became athletic director, fired Charlie Weiss in 2009, and and everybody saw it coming. I mean, I remember going to those last couple of Weiss press conferences when he was head coach as right. they were playing out the string, and you felt like you were seeing a prisoner on death row. Yep. The, there was just no – even though he was surly with the media, um, we had gracious times with him. We also had run-ins with him. Sure. And that that's part of the business. Yeah, it sure is. 2010 comes along, and here comes Brian Kelly. But now you have a coach who has established himself, worked his way up through the ranks, Grand Valley State, Central Michigan, Cincinnati, had shown he has an idea of how to win. And I know some people aren't going to want to hear this, but give the devil his due. He's also done it down at LSU. Yes, he is. You know, he took over a program that was left in complete disarray by Ed Orgeron and has taken them to the SEC title game. No question about it. When he came to Notre Dame, too, he, he had a definite idea. As you said, coming from the coaching ranks in college, you have an idea of what you have to have. I have to have a defensive coordinator that I can trust. i got to have an offensive coordinator that can be creative. All these things that you go into surrounding yourself again with good talent, and Brian was uh, willing to do that. And uh, there were some times when I thought that uh, – he had enough talent uh, to maybe even have a little bit more success, but he didn't have that Lou Holtz ability to elevate guys, you know, guys who were nines, get them to play like 11s right. so you can beat a 10. And I thought Brian, you know, he went into some games with uh, a lot of eight and nines who had done really well and uh, just weren't able to get over the hump. And uh, But as you said, he's, uh, he's shown that he could win. He won for a lot of years here. And I think when he left here, a lot of it had to do with things behind the scenes that maybe he wanted other things to be given to the program, and uh, so he was looking. Well, I think it's pretty clear. They wound up, while there had developed a good relationship between Brian Kelly and Jack Swarbrick, at a certain point that relationship seemed to have soured a bit. Yeah. And it wound up, I think, being more adversarial than either one would let on. Well, you know... uh, Gary, uh, defensive coordinator under Lou Holtz. Uh, Gary, sure. 
easy for me to say, but uh, mm. I'll think of his name in a minute. But uh, he left after three years of being defense coordinator for, for Lou Holtz, and that happened quite often. And uh, I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, in the course of a college coaching career, you're going to get married seven, eight, nine times. You're going to be in a relationship. Two different coaches. And do you think all of them are going to work out? Yeah. They're not. And uh, and this one wasn't wrong. It just wasn't going to work out. So uh, so he was going to leave. And I, I think when Brian Kelly uh, and Jack Swarbrick were together for uh, a long time and uh, we built a new practice facility, we had a lot of different things. I was going to say, left the place a lot better than what he inherited. Right. Now, a lot of that was because – Notre Dame wasn't on the same page with a lot of things going on in college football that they needed to get caught up to, um, training tables, things like that. Brian Kelly made that happen. It was a rocky road. Um, eight and five his first year. Actually started out three and five. Gets a huge upset win over Utah at the stadium and winds up with a freshman quarterback named Tommy Reese. Uh, not only beating Utah, but then winning games at, I think it was Yankee Stadium, the L.A. Coliseum, and the Sun Bowl, and wound up going 8-5 and five that first year. So Marcus Freeman's 8-4, and four, as we said off the top, kind of falling somewhere in the middle. I know you've got places to go, so this is a good time <laughs> to wrap yep. this one up. We can talk about bowl games next week when we find out where the Irish are going. There you go. Kind of go through the history of that. Until the next time we talk to you here on Irish Tales, Chuck Freebie for the Tale Teller, Bob Nagel. Thanks for listening. Sportsjack presents Irish Tales with Chuck Freebie and Bob Nagel. Stories from the land of the fighting Irish on the Studio DNA Podcast Network.